Hi, and welcome to episode 103. Now, if we throw our minds way back in the past to episode 90, uh, I released an episode with the ever-lovely Clarissa Sawley around her clinician's experience and her research into graffiti. Now, after that episode aired, I had some DMs and started a conversation with a guy who was very much a part of that subculture. And during that conversation, we kind of put together the idea of let's do another episode around that culture. But I guess this is probably more from the lived experience perspective. Uh, So this is that very episode. Now, for the purposes of it, he has asked whether he could remain anonymous, and I am more than happy to grant that request. You will hear during the episode some of the reasons why that was asked for. The episode itself, I learned a ridiculous amount about graffiti and the culture, and we really tried to get into the weeds about what makes people engaged in this culture tick. So sit back, relax, grab a drink, throw your earphones in, and I really hope you enjoy this deep dive into the subculture of graffiti writers. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. And, you know, the thing is, what I find is, is, in general with OT, I, I kind of get to these points where I think I've got it. I'm like, yep, yeah, okay, yep, yeah, i got this now. So when I first moved to Australia about five years ago, I, got, I was working in a role where it was a lot about sensory processing. So sensory processing, but also it was a trauma-focused service as well. So I learned loads about, you know, Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory, uh, Bruce Perry's neurosequential model of therapy. And we were working with people of all different ages, like trauma, out-of-home care, justice system, all that type of stuff. And what I found was funny was at the time is that I was like, okay, I got this now. I got this. You know, I've, I've, I've done a bit of work here. I started off in acute surgical medical, which I think was quite good when I first started because I needed that kind of predictability and consistency to kind of yep, feel yep. that I wasn't overwhelmed. So, but I quickly found it quite limiting where it was like, no, your role is you give out commodes. Yeah. You give out commodes and you give out grab sticks and the physios. Now they do um, walking aid assessments and using stairs. And don't you dare prescribe anyone, any type of mobility thing. Cause the physios won't be happy. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's, and the thing is, is with OT is that now I'm in independent practice or private practice, whatever. I basically can do whatever I want. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Within yeah. reason, obviously. <laughs> but I know, cause I think that's then a good segue into what we're going to talk about today is a dark side of the dark side of occupation, but specifically a particular occupation. Yeah, so we connected after I released an episode uh, about graffiti, which which was predominantly about, I guess, what the literature says, and you wanted to bring forward yes. 
well, let's call it your lived experience, uh, which is awesome. And you'd done a podcast uh, before mm. with Kwaku on OT and Chill, which was epic. And I was like, yeah, sweet. Let's, let's, let's do this. Let's get into the weeds and, and nut this thing out. Because it's, it's one of those topics, one of those areas that I never really realized how deep the rabbit hole goes. It's one of those <laughs> things that I think people sort of, they'll see graffiti and they'll see it when they're walking around the street. And like, I know I've made faux pas when I've, labeled things and and seen like oh you know this is art but this is rubbish or that's just someone signing their name <laughs> on the side of a building so in you know listening to your episode on ot and chill and you know talking to clarissa and and hearing about like what's actually in the literature it, it's one of those things where i realize it's like a whole it's a whole other world it's it's something that most people don't get any exposure to but it's a world that you yourself were <laughs> embedded in. It, it's it's part of your world. So, so to give a bit of context, I have been a graffiti writer. So to confirm, there's different terminology that's used. So this graffiti writer, graffiti artist. If 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 you look at the sensationalist mainstream media, it's graffiti gangs, graffiti yobs, graffiti vandals, vandal vandal gang, um, because the media love to really sensationalize sensationalize graffiti. But we can we can talk about that why they might do that and why that is interesting. But I think so. That was episode ninety nine zero that you did with Clarissa, and I actually re listened to it this morning because I thought I'd go out for a walk and I'd really just, and I think she did a really good job, especially coming from someone who's outside the actual culture. I think she did a really good job at showing the nuance of it and showing kind of, you know, her experience. One thing that really stuck out with me was when she went, yeah, I went on a, you know, on a, a street art tour and then they gave us a workshop of how to do stencils. And I was really listening to that this morning. And when she said the word stencils, I kind of went, Ugh, like my internal, my internal narrative, my internal kind of feeling was like Ugh, stencils. And I thought that's interesting because she then went on to say, she then introduced that idea to some um, people that have done graffiti for a fair amount of time, you know, graffiti writers. And just to define why it's writers, because you're essentially writing things. So you're writing words or letters. So that's why it's your writer and graffiti writers, we call each other writers. So it's like, oh, I know that writer, or I know that writer. I wouldn't say I know that graffiti artist. Yeah, yeah, that's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah, <laughs> and also there's so much terminology, and I mean, that's where it can get a bit confusing, but breaking some of it down can be helpful. But when she then, then said, oh, you know, I've got some paint, and I've got some stencils, and how the people that she was presenting that idea to kind of turned their nose up at, at, it, at it. And they're like, no, nah, that's cheating. And I was like, ah, interesting. So like stencils as in like letter cutout kind of things. Yeah. So, okay. So let's, 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 let's give a bit of a, an overview. So I think although Clarissa did do a really good job at defining some of the key component parts of it, 
and actually explaining the depth and like you've said like the rabbit hole because it is an endless rabbit hole and i guess i guess when you then listen to that episode of ot and chill with kwaku you were like oh my goodness this is pretty deep yeah it's a lot deeper than i <laughs> still realize <laughs> well hopefully today you'll be like oh i've learned because you know i've been involved in this which i didn't actually say i kind of went off on a tangent which i normally do um i've been doing it since i was 15 years old and i'm now nearly 38 and i, and I still do it in various forms um and that's why i run my podcast and that's why i'm keeping my name kind of I'm not saying my actual name. I'm not saying my actual name, my, you know, my actual, my birth name, as you might say, but you know, my podcast is toy division. So T O Y and then division. It's, it's a, it's a pun on a certain band from the UK, but we'll leave that for people to work out. Cause I'm it's sure a bit of, guess. <laughs> a bit of anonymity. Yeah. But some people can't, some people have never heard of that band and that, and I had someone message me on the um, Instagram the other day, bro. I've only just got work. I've only just worked out the reference to beep band. That's so clever. I've been listening for eight months and didn't work it out. And I was like, cool. Okay. <laughs> someone's a bit slow. Someone's yeah. Someone's not been really um, checking out their bands from the UK in the 60s, 70s and 80s. How dare they? So, so I guess one of the things I just wanted to go back was let's start right at the beginning. You know, where did graffiti writing or as, some people are now calling it stylized letter writing, which is a bit, which is a bit more kind of clear. It's like stylized letter writing. It sounds like they're trying to make it like, I guess, like a more socially acceptable term, like a, like it's essentially the same thing, but a more socially acceptable occupation, like the marketing departments got hold of it or something. Yeah. But I think graffiti writers are trying to differentiate themselves from street artists because we can go into that in a, a minute in a minute as well because it's not it's not a very um it's not really a very nice relationship between the two subcultures yeah it cuz street art is essentially an offshoot of stylized letter writing but anyway so okay so let's talk about history so you guys were saying on the podcast um, that, you know, you, I think you've done a Google search and like tagging started in the 90s. So actually, again, as you and Chris did kind of state was that, you know, people writing on things has been happening since cave, cave paintings. You know, people making marks on something, people forging things into something or leaving a name or a statement or something like that has been through all of human history. But the type of thing we're talking about when we're talking about stylized letter writing or graffiti writing, probably, well, it mostly started either, which is interesting. There's a really good documentary if people want to check it out called Wall Writers. So W-A-L-L Writers. And that's by someone um, by the name of Roger Gastman. And that goes through the very early years of graffiti writing. So essentially, what it's most likely is that there was a lot of um, activity happening. And it's difficult to know when it really started to happen. But probably in the 70s or late, late 60s, early 70s in Philadelphia. And also simultaneously, New York City. So what was happening there was, and this is about the stylized letter writing, because you've got different, different offshoots of this, which is where it gets a bit confusing. 
But essentially, there was someone who was writing cornbread. So that was, if you watch that documentary, he, he kind of he, he's interviewed. But essentially, he you know, he was always eating cornbread or something like that. And then he just wanted to impress a girl that he was. He, he just wanted to impress a girl. I think he was in juvenile detention center, and he got out. And when well, he was in the juvenile detention center, he was just writing cornbread everywhere. And then cornbread kind of got a bit of fame, and everyone's like, "Oh wow, cornbread." So that's probably one of the earliest documented people that was doing that. But the key was they were writing the same word over and over and over again. So that's the difference. Like, you know, maybe someone in Victorian times might be writing like, I love Queen Victoria or something like that. I don't know know if people did. I guess some people did. Um, I'm sure someone did. Yeah, I think Prince Albert probably did. Well, we hope he did. Otherwise, that would have been a very cold marriage. Um, and then at the sim at, at a similar time, this was happening in New York. That was happening in New York as well. So people writing words, and if you can imagine Philadelphia and New York City in the late sixties, early seventies, they were not in good condition. Like those cities were run down, and the poverty and the state of things was just like falling apart, that urban blight. Again, there's, there's lots of really good books. Um, there's one, I think it's called Taking the Train, and it goes through the social, economic, and environmental factors that led to the stylized letter writing. But anyway, I'm jumping off on a tangent. So what then happens is, is that people saw it. People saw cornbread. People saw things in New York that was happening, and there was a very important... Um, because of the, the the media started to notice it. So I think it was, there's a really seminal uh, article that was in a New York City newspaper. Um, it's like graffiti tagger earns friends. And it was all about someone who write, was writing tacky, T-A-K-I, 183. Now the difference was in New York was that people would write a number after their tag normally what block they lived on so or what apartment building was or whatever so it was a slightly different thing so tacky 183 he was a messenger he was like a like a bike I think messenger he was just, kind of thing yeah but i don't think he had a bike i think he just walked and he just had a marker pen with him and he just wrote tacky 183 wherever he went and oh no that was it um graffiti writer earns pen pals or something like that was the name of the article i've got a copy of it um, printed out because I'm a mega, I'm a mega nerd of graffiti history, and um, he got well known, and then people started copying it. So you can imagine there was this kind of thing that was happening in two cities around about the same time, but then in the seventies, and this is the key explosive part of it, people worked out in New York City if you wrote your tag on a train, that would go through multiple boroughs or boroughs boroughs the five boroughs whatever it would go you could do a train in say manhattan so you could write your name on the inside or the outside and then people all over this all over the city in the bronx manhattan brooklyn far out of staten island would see your tag and then you're becoming famous that nom de plume that name where you've got your other identity because the whole thing was was that you would do it oh 
it's the police dogs. Um, you'd uh, <laughs> you'd you'd get a, a, your your pseudonym, your nom de plume, and then you could basically be someone else. You would become like a secret identity. Well, that's the whole thing because you don't want you don't. I'm, I'm not going to write. You know, you probably well some people do. You you're probably not going to write Brock. Uh, 85 or whatever, depending what year you're born. Because it would be quite obvious that it's probably you. But you might write, you choose something else. So people choose a nom de plume to begin writing, but also it's the anonymity. So you can start to build this whole identity. And like you and Clarissa spoke about, was that the more daring the things that you write on, the more things you do, so it could be volume, it could be location, it could be the transition, because most people will start off doing tags. Now, this is the biggest misconception. You know, whenever I'm painting a legal wall or a commission wall, someone will come up and say, oh, wow, this is amazing. Do you do commissions? I'll say, yeah, yeah, I could come and do a commission. Oh, okay, what's your details? And then you kind of get into conversation with them and then they say, but do you know what I really hate? And I'm like, I know what it's going to be. I really hate all those tags and those scribbles. They're just, they're just horrible. I just don't get it. It's just, just scribbling on things. Now, what people don't realize is a tag. So a tag is defined as like the signature. So, you know, on paintings like Picasso might write Picasso. Yeah. So it's, it's like a signature and it's something which is your word. So if let's just take an example, say I've chosen to word the right cornbread. Cornbread. Although I would get, I would get dissed for get that. I'd get, in, I'd get seriously dissed for that because that's someone else's word. Banana and bread. Banana. <laughs> that's a long word to be doing. <laughs> if you're trying to write it quickly because you're doing it illegally and you're like B A. Oh, is there one? Is there one N or two Ns or no? There's three Ns. But it, okay, so it's just like Jack Twelve, right? So say Jack Twelve, and. If you were trying to get Jack 12 everywhere, the quickest, easiest, and most simple way to do it is to write it simply. So Jack 12. But the thing is with Jack 12, Jack 12 does that quite a bit. And then Jack 12 wants to go a bit bigger. Jack 12 wants to people more people to be able to see it. So if you can imagine if we're going back to when people started writing on the New York subway, if you did like a scrawny little Jack, did I say Jack 12, whatever, Jack, Jack 13, Jack 12. Thank you. I better write that down. Cause I'm going to keep getting it wrong. Um, and just for any listeners, this is not the word I write. Um, so Jack 12, if you did it on the side of a train and it was just tags, it'd be tiny. People wouldn't really be able to see it, but if you went a bit bigger, so it started off with someone would do a tag. So you can imagine the J, the A, let's say it's a K, and then a one, two. And that's just in one color, right? So it may be in red or dark or whatever. And the trains were very clean at that point, but people would still see Jack 12 everywhere. But if you wanted it to get bigger, what then happened was people would do that tag and then they'd go round it with another color to define it. So it's a bit more clear. Essentially, all the big stylized, you know, pieces short for masterpiece what they are is they're just really inflated more complex tags and that's often that connection between that is kind of forgotten so i was painting somewhere a while ago and you know the police they always like to come up and go have you got permission here and like yes you know this is a this has a sign on the wall saying legal graffiti wall and they're like oh we don't believe that blah 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 <laughs> 
Oh, I didn't put the sign there. <laughs> Even though it was actually one in, engraved in metal on the side. So we didn't just, we didn't just stick it up. But anyway, but then people do things like they, they get fake letters written or they make it on their computer and they look, I've got permission see, and the police go, all right, yeah, cool. Anyway. Um, and it was this thing where there's still that disconnect. You know, the police were saying like, yeah, we don't mind this, but you know, the people that have done that, the tags there, that's just, that's just mindless, isn't it? And again, it's that disconnect and that, that whole thing. And I guess the thing is, is that the reason why I wanted to speak to you is and really give an insider kind of perspective is not only am I an OT and I see it from an OT perspective and I love, again, your podcast was what got me introduced to the dark side of occupation. Although I had been thinking like that ever since I went into practice because being involved in the graffiti culture you know, I'm in recovery for alcohol and substance misuse. I've lived in some pretty difficult situations or experienced personal trauma and stuff like that. And one thing which always got me with when I went into practice was how detached a lot of the other OTs were when it came to people that were like substance use. Like I remember my first week in the hospital was um, in the uh, acute medical. I heard one of the senior OTs make jokes about patients just coming in just because they're drug drug addicts and they they don't really need our help they just need they just want the drugs and i remember sitting there thinking oh all right not everyone maybe thinks like i think (laughs) as if everyone would do anyway so i've gone a bit off topic but so going back to graffiti writing in itself is that i think yeah because that's why i wanted to speak to you is i think clarissa and you did a great job but just redefining some of the stuff because graffiti writers like, like Clarissa said, when she was like, Hey, come and use these stencils. And they're just like, Ugh, no. Or Hey, come and do an art group. Instead. You're like, piss off. I don't want to do, I don't do an art group. And I've actually, I've actually run graffiti workshops in quite a few places. And the level of engagement that I've had, whether it's someone that does, graffiti writing themselves because many, many, many people in many different types of society have engaged and it's predominantly male dominated, but I've got quite a few friends who are, uh, you know, identify as female. Cause that's another thing with your podcast, the episode about the terminology for he, she, they, uh, him. And I've been like that. I was driving to go and see a client and I was thinking, oh, I really need to get signed up on this, but that was really useful because I think, yeah, the person that you interviewed was like, well, how do you prefer to be referred to? And you're like, uh, I don't really ever think about it. And it really did make me think, but, you know, talking about people having engaged in this subculture, there's hundreds of thousands. I reckon there's thousands of people doing it across the world right now. And there's probably been hundreds of thousands of people that have done it. And you know what I found that, that point of connection with often people who don't really want to engage has been amazing. So people of all different ages, especially if they're a previous or former or current graffiti writer, the terminology you use together is amazing, but most people listening to this will never have done it. So I'm just trying to give like a bit of an insider perspective to add on to that great job that you guys did on episode 90. Yeah, yeah. And I think Clarissa said during the episode, like she's basing this purely on like what the literature says and that she's not actually part of the culture, but 
uh, like has a, a strong interest in it and a lot of the stuff was based around her observations from outside. One thing I do want to ask about is, uh, I guess, the medium. So you mentioned, I think it was the cornbread guy that was uh, using like a, a marker uh, to write on the walls. And I think traditionally when people think about graffiti, uh, I guess the image of like spray can, spray paint uh, is what comes to mind. But is it is I guess the the definition or the the cultural significance of the spray can sort of a purest uh, way of looking at graffiti, or are there other artists or writers that use other things like no you know paint normal paint with a brush or a roller, etc. Very good question, and this is where this is where because I'm a mega nerd, I'm a mega nerd on this stuff. I've actually got in front of me here a really good book that's just come out because I've got a whole graffiti library of books because there's many books and magazines and podcasts, you know, check out toy division. Um, so there's a book here called um, two decades of digging and it's by a collective of people um, cap matches color and they go around the U S and collect vintage spray paint. And that gives a history of paint itself. But to clarify, to answer your question, I guess it's, it's probably it probably started off with marker pens so if people were doing quite small tags like uh you know jack 13 if he was back in the 70s he would have just had a marker pen just like writing it on the side of the train or something yeah or like in his neighborhood because that was the other thing a lot of neighborhoods everyone had to have a word well didn't have to but they did because it was like jack 13 uh, cool Herc 55. Oh, sorry, Cool Herc. I've just bastardized his name. But because um, Cool Herc's one of the founding people in hip hop culture. And that's another thing to then go into the association with the term hip hop, because I think that's, that's important to define. But so if you can imagine, graffiti writing was something which came out of not a rejection of the art world, but it's like a DIY homegrown way of making a mark then what happened is is that people worked out spray paint you can get a lot of paint and a lot of um kind of space covered very quickly and you can get quite a lot the only thing is using spray paint is really flipping difficult it's not an easy medium to use you know, a brush is very different. And Clarissa, as she did say, you know, the whole sensory experience. But then what happened is, is that it became, you would use spray paint to do your pieces. So when someone says a piece, it's a masterpiece. So it's like short for masterpiece. You wanted to be able to do it quickly and you wanted to be able to get the hell out of there. Now, if you're using a brush, you've got to take a pot of paint with you and like dip it in and, you know, maybe mix it a little bit. If you can you know, the, the, the stereotypical thing of like a, an artist with their kind of their paint plate and they're kind of like mixing it up and da, 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 da. You've got like, it was predominantly male teenagers going into these like train yards and train yards aren't a nice place to be. Well, they weren't, you know, especially in New York in the seventies and eighties, certain gangs. So we'll go into, again, we'll go into why the gang thing is kind of see, but certain crews. So that's like a graffiti crew, which you did mention. And just to clarify, it doesn't have to just be three letters. It can be two letters, three letters, four letters, five letters. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. So the other thing was, was that stealing spray paint was you were expected to do that. 
that was what you did. Because if you can imagine majority of these kids or teenagers doing it, they weren't, they didn't have loads of spare money to like go and buy art supplies. So you'd go, well, you'd go racking. So the term racking refers to shoplifting. And it would, it would just be such a standard way of, you know, getting the name up. And I guess the thing is, the key is the, the space. And like you spoke about, you can get different caps, so different nozzles. But the brands that people used of spray paint, they were not designed for graffiti. They were like hardware paint. So in the most classic ones in the US are Rust-Oleum, uh, Krylon, Red Devil, Wet Look. But what happened was, is that people used these things because they would go and rack, steal whatever they could get. So it was like go into a store, distract the owner, stuff some stuff into a bag or shove it down your trousers or whatever. People then came to realize that different brands of paint. So people might be like, ah, oh, the flat blue or the regal red Rust-Oleum is great for X or the Krylon green is X. So it became like the spray paint was its own medium, but then created its own style as well. Now, what then has happened is as graffiti has got older, it's still not very mature. It's still in its like teenage aggressive thing, but I'm trying to do something about that. Um, and many other people are, is that people worked out, you could get different materials to do different things. So we've already talked about a marker pen, but then if you think, you know, like a, a shoe, um, a shoe, shoe polish thing, like that you would have, it's got a little circle and you push it down and the shoe oh, dye yeah, comes like out. Like a little foam thing on the end. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you if you rack or or buy, but back in the day it was if you bought your supplies, you were a toy. And a toy is like the worst insult. Calling someone a toy is like, it's like inexperienced or unskilled. Someone called me a toy, probably not now, but years ago I probably would have got in a fight with them. It's like calling someone a toy is a really bad thing. Um, so what you do is you just, you just get one of those, pull the top off, fill it with ink, and then and you choose. And then you've got paint dispenser. Yeah. Well, you've got a you've got an ink dispenser which drips, so you can like do a tag on the inside of a train or the outside or on the street on a certain surface, and then you have this lovely drippy, almost like the the beauty and the ugliness of it. Because that's the other thing is people think graffiti is like, oh wow, I love the photorealistic face that was done by a street artist. That kind of stuff for me is like that that nah not interested not interested at all yeah yeah and what so what then happened was is because of the need to do graffiti in different places and because what happened was was that you know there's the term the buff b-u-double-f b-u-double-f the buff so if something gets buffed it gets painted over okay. it gets you know yep. graffiti Makes removal sense. spray of it yeah so it's just it's buffed yep. it's got rid of and Graffiti writers obviously don't like the buff because what they've spent their time and their energy, whether it's 10 seconds or six hours, is gone. So it's like, we don't like the buff. So then people then work out, okay, well, if they're going to buff this, they're going to be able to buff my marker. They might start trying to find inks. And again, there was no graffiti specific supplies. So people would find like a certain like marsh ink which was, I think, for marking labels on um, food items and receipts and stuff. Okay. People would find pots of those and then pour it in, and they found it would then last longer. 
So what then happened was, is that it would get more and more extreme. The buff was getting more and more extreme. So people would be doing things like scratching into windows with a rock or a dart sharpener or a piece of glass. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, which again is like, often seems like the lowest of the low point. Yeah, yeah. But, but the thing is then, like now in where I'm in Sydney, they've put coating on the windows so that even if someone did scratch into it, they just pull the coating off. Yeah, they just peel a, peel a layer off. But I have, but this is what I'm talking about, is like that DIY culture, that kind of let's think about how to make this last as long as possible. So then we're talking about roller paint. So in the UK where I'm from, the terminology is mulch for emulsion paint. So we, I used to call it mulch. But here in Australia, people call it buff because buff paint is what the council or the cleaners will use to roll over graffiti. So it gets called buff, okay. right? Yep. But if you then get a tray of buff and you get an extension thing on a roller, you can get it really high up yep. and you can get it somewhere where the council cleaners can't come up can't come over and um clean it so there was there's two dude so this is the thing it's almost like this cat and mouse constant thing like graffiti writers the buff and the police and that's the whole other subject that the the punishments of graffiti people don't realize this they are very harsh in a lot of places like very very harsh which we can talk about so there's two people by the name of revs r-e-v-s and cost c-o-s-t now in new york city they were doing these roller pieces. So they're word, but rolled out just in one color using buff paint really high up. Okay. And loads of graffiti writers were like, that's toy. What are you doing? You can't do that. That's not using spray paint. That's for toys. Like toys, only toys use roller paint. That's not real graffiti writing. So you can see there's this kind of thing with graffiti writers where it's meant to be the most, you can do whatever you want to do. But there's so many norms. There's so many rules. Yeah. There's so many like, well, that's you shouldn't do that or you shouldn't do that. You should only do letters. So it's like this whole thing of like creative expression, but it's mega rigid. So does the does the the rules kind of like a lot of things? The rules are kind of, uh, I guess, more structured around sticking to the way it was. So are the yeah, rules around graffiti like this is how it used to be? So this is how it should be. Yeah. And so the, so long story short to answer your question, essentially, so they were saying revs and cost, but they also started doing things like they'd print out um, pieces of paper that just said revs cost, revs cost, revs cost, revs cost, revs cost. They'd just print that out or photocopy it and then we paste that to things. Okay. That was seen as like, oh, graffiti writers don't do that, but they did it so much. And also they made tons and tons of stickers. So it was like, I think it's like cost. I think one of them was like cost effed Madonna or something like that. So it actually said the word and it was stuck everywhere. Revs cost, revs cost, revs cost. So it was like that, that intense way of doing it. And things now is that over time, roller pieces, really high up roller pieces, um, stickers, wheat pasting stencils is still a bit of a because essentially if you can imagine someone stays at home and like cut something out then goes up to a wall and just sprays it for like like two seconds risk mitigation yeah and also it's seen by graffiti writers to be very like street art 
So we can go yeah. on to that in a second because there's, or if someone said street art, you're like, don't call me a street artist. I'm not a street artist. No, no, no. I don't want to be a street artist. I'm a graffiti writer. And the things we were talking about with the norms. So to for people that are listening to this, people that haven't switched off already and just go, I hate graffiti. <laughs> the people that are interested, there's so much information to be gathered from very reliable sources. Now there's a lot of like sensationalist stuff, which has been done by people outside of the culture but there's so many seminal books and seminal films so one thing i would recommend to people if they're interested is try and find two really good quality books one's called subway art so subway art or and spray can art now although they're quite old specifically subway art that for me was the first ever graffiti book i ever read and i was like 15 I used to go around to a friend's parents' place and they'd let us do way more than our parents would do. They'd just let us use recreational drugs at their house. Anyway, and they were like, oh, you, you, you're kind of like into this graffiti stuff. Have a look at this book. And I remember looking at it and I was like, this is old, but it's a seminal book by Martha Cooper and Henry Chalfant. Um, or Chalfant, I always mispronounce his name. So they were two photographers in New York in the 70s and the 80s. We started seeing the trains covered in this like amazing, it progressed from tags with an outline around it to like bubble letters, then straight letters. And then the whole carriages were being covered with characters. And this was all done illegally with stolen paint and in train yards where you might have people come in with like baseball bats and attack you for doing their yard or the police come in and beat you rather than take you to the police station or whatever. Oh, and it's also train systems are very dangerous, but Henry Chalfant and Martha Cooper, they were super interested and they began f- f- photographing um, the subways, but they were doing their own thing individually. Martha Cooper was more interested in like the scenery. So she'd do shots of the trains running through areas of New York that were kind of really, you know, landscape. And it was just, it's an, it's an amazing book. I've actually got the 25 year anniversary, which is a three size and still the photo and henry chalfant was more interested in like the actual pictures of the train so you can't really see the backgrounds um it's just the actual pieces kind of stitched together and they then found each other and they were like oh you're doing the same thing as me and then they got in contact with graffiti writers and the graffiti writers started doing things like, Oh yeah, check out on the, the four line. I've got a top to bottom whole car. So it's like, that's a top to the bottom of a train carriage covered in graffiti yep. by a, a writer or multiple writers. And they brought this book out subway art and subway art when it was released. I think it's one of the most stolen books ever. I think. Okay. <laughs> Just because of the nature of the culture that it was documenting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like you go in and you're like, oh, I haven't got I haven't got ten dollars to take this. I'm just gonna shove this down my pants. Yep. So <laughs> but that's that's worth definitely worth checking out. Spray can art and subway art. Now that's quite old. That's the thing. There's a lot of graffiti media now. Because of the internet, the graffiti culture has changed a lot. You can step into graffiti culture. You can just go up on YouTube and look up how to do graffiti writing or how to paint graffiti. And you'll get a very basic kind of tutorial about how to do it. Now, that's not how it was when I started. Yeah. It was like you kind of saw it and you thought, who does that? How do they do it? 
you'd never seen anyone do it. It's just something you and Clarissa spoke about was you'd never seen anyone doing it. No, you just you're like, see the you're like, product. Yeah, you see, you kind of get up in the morning and there's this bright thing just sat there. And you're like, who did that? How did they do it? And they are definitely not allowed to do that. How did they manage to do it? So it was kind of like you tried to work it out. You kind of tried to like, and I mean, this is, you know, I started in the late nineties, but people before that, all they had was things like they might see a, a two minute thing on the TV program about the New York subway graffiti yeah. and they'd see it and be inspired. And then they'd get a copy of subway art. And that's where, you know, we're talking about the rigid rules and expectations and like cultural norms and the occupational norms and kind of the roles and all the rules that are quite rigid. Most of them come from that very early depiction. So subway art, spray can art, and also a film, a documentary film that was made. These are all available on YouTube now by Henry Chalfant and someone else called Style. So S-T-Y-L-E, Wars, Style Wars. Now, that is a great documentary and it's free on YouTube. It's very well produced. And that then expands on everything. But what happened was, is that the hip hop style thinking. So if people think hip hop, I was explaining this to my brother-in-law the other day because he's never really listened to rap music ever and he's got the he's got the stereotype that it's people going yeah i've got loads of money and yeah i've got loads of guns and like yeah Yeah, i sell drugs and blah blah blah. well there is a component part of that but the the hip-hop culture thing was created as a bit of like a sellable package so it's like break dancing yep graffiti writing MCing. so an MC is someone that raps and DJing. Now those, then it's like, when I first got into it, I was fully signed up to like the four elements of hip hop, man, going to wear my shell toes and like wear baggy trousers and like be mega fresh and represent and all that. And you know what? I take the piss out of it now. Sorry, I probably shouldn't swear. Well, it's not really swearing, but I take the mick out of it, but you know what? I was a very shy, quiet, quite socially awkward person. Yep. And finding graffiti and DJing and emceeing, I only started breakdancing a few months ago for my wedding, which was an interesting to, thing to do in your late in your late thirties. But anyway, it went well. Um, although I did injure my back, but that's that's more of a complexity of um, persistent chronic pain. Um, but the four, the four element thing was then got sold as a package. Yeah. So if you go to say Germany, they are very strong on that interconnected breakdancing your know, graffiti breakdancing djing and emceeing yes there are four elements of hip-hop yep. that kind of thing so that's very strong and in the uk that was then sold as that but i think what people don't realize is some of the real like original what we would call a king so a king so the toy is like someone who's rubbish yeah, yeah. but a king Obviously. is someone who's prolific yeah. it's like you can also they can also have a queen that doesn't have to just be misogynistic yeah it's not just sexist like you can only be a king you can have a queen as well um but you know like a king or a queen is someone that's very prolific very up but some of the original so someone like blade b l a d e scene s double e n they were never into like rap music they were never into break dancing they were never into djing they'd listen to like black sabbath (laughs) and like 
proper good rock music. Yeah, yeah. And that's there's, there's this idea that it's like oh, graffiti is hip hop. There's people of all different walks of life that engage in this occupation for many, many, many different reasons. See, I wonder, like, there's a lot of uh, culture that gets spread in that way. And I, I like the way you described it as it was originally seen as, like, this package. Like, this was the the elements that make up this hip-hop culture that mm. then spread. And I'm sure it spread very similar to Australia back in the day as well. Um, but, yeah, there's always going to be people that, you know, one aspect of that is going to speak to them, but the rest of it might not or a couple aspects might speak to them so they'll take that and i think that's how it kind of evolves so that you know hip-hop in the uk or hip-hop in somewhere else in australia is going to look different to you know the the filtered version that we would have been seeing from america because unless you're actually there you're not gonna see the the proper similar similar to what we're talking about with graffiti like Unless you're actually in it, you don't really understand the nuance of it. Um, and what we're all, all we're seeing from this distance, and back then, you know, tra- travel and transport wasn't as good as it is now. Not that anyone's going anywhere at the moment, but um, <laughs> all we're seeing is that the filtered version or the the presented version is kind of like looking at Instagram, but it was you know music videos and and documentaries or you know ra- recorded radio shows. It would have been back then that kind of stuff. Or the actual lyrics of songs that uh, might discuss the culture itself. Uh, so yeah, it was a very filtered version, and I could definitely see how the the perception of all of those four things being a package was uh, presented and then sort of adopted by other people in other countries. I can yeah, I can definitely see how that. I like, I like that that description of it. It makes a lot of sense, and it's quite appealing. Like- yeah. What the cool thing is about hip hop culture is, and this is where it's then become very watered down and, you know, people see it from an outside perspective and think it's very much. So you've got like this. Okay. So just to clarify, I have DJed. Yep. (laughs) I still make and record rap music. I'm an MC. I do graffiti writing and I recently started to learn how to break dance. So I was saying it's not as simple as the four elements, but (laughs) I have fully indulged in this multifaceted complex collection of cultures that sit together. But what I really liked from the beginning was it was about what your skills were. It wasn't about having money. So this is the main thing is that, you know, West Coast hip hop, and to be honest, East Coast US. So we're talking about the United States. The West Coast kind of thing where it was quite aggressive, quite, you know, all about money and guns and drugs. And the thing is, a lot of that is social commentary on the the failed war on drugs and people living in communities where they see the local crack dealer or the local heroin dealer or the local weed dealer being the person who gets the girls, has a car, has nice trainers and is living the dream. And that's their observations. That's like a snapshot of their life, but it doesn't necessarily mean that all hip hop or all all rap music is like that. It doesn't. And what I really liked was I was, I said, I was really shy. I was a bit overweight or short, had glasses. And then I worked out that maybe I got pretty good at DJing. I never was that good, but that was what then gave me kudos. And maybe you'd like battle someone. So you'd have a little competition, Mm. But it was like, I knew people that were like, 
I wasn't from a well-off background. I was from a working class background. And I knew people that were from super rich backgrounds, but it was like this leveler. And the other thing is culturally wise, I've met people of every race, not every, most race, well, most races, but I was going to say nationalities. And you know what? The common theme, theme is like, especially with graffiti, it's like I could go to Spain now and just be like, put it on the Instagram of the to- uh, toy division Instagram. Yeah. I'm in Barcelona. If I could travel anywhere outside New South Wales, which you can't, yeah. um, yeah, I'm in Barcelona. Anyone want to paint? And I bet you someone would probably reach out and be like, yeah, yeah, come and come and come with me. Come with my friends. Cause yep. that's the other thing you got that leveler, but it was interesting when you were talking about lyrics. So I don't know if this is going to, so when, cause I was thinking about how I was going to kind of give an awareness of, so I actually have got some of my lyrics which okay. does have graffiti references in it. Okay. So it's, a, so it's a few things. Is it all right if I read it out? Go for it. Okay, so let's begin a lesson in fat cap lettering. Sick and this is the medicine, a day of reckoning. I can't stand guys who chat lies and bombing track sides, battleships capsize, Mr. Bad Disguise. Want to paint more, spray walls and stain floors till it's my day in court. So if you can see there, someone might listen to that. I don't get the references. <laughs> so the first, the first lot, as I said, Let's begin a lesson in fat cap lettering. So a fat cap is a nozzle of a spray can, which comes out with a lot of paint. That's, That's called really a f- wide or something. A fat, a fat cap. Yep. If it comes out thin, it's a skinny cap. Okay. Okay. Um, cap being next, the actual nozzle bit itself. The nozzle. Yep. Yeah. To, to clarify. So if people are thinking, and interestingly enough on not, the- Not the, the lid. The no. Yeah. No. So what people used to have to do, so if we're thinking back to the old days- if you wanted to find a cap, so a nozzle that came out a certain way, you'd have to go and find other products. So one of the most um, famous one is Jif Foam Oven Cleaner. Okay. Now, Jif Foam Oven Cleaner has a certain cap on it. So you go in the store, pull the top off, take the cap off, walk out. You can put that on a spray can of paint and it comes out really nice. It comes out really wide. So... <laughs> That's the other thing people don't get is, and it was, and it was like back in the day, it wasn't just stealing your paint. It was like finding the right caps. Also cameras. No one had cameras. No one could afford to get things developed. So people would go and rack camera films for their camera that then had the free developing voucher in it. (laughs) So you'd need to go and steal the right things to, and these days, you know, you can just go online and buy all this stuff online, but that's a whole other subject. And then the other lyric that I had in that was, um, I can't stand guys who chat lies. I'm bombing track sides. So bombing track sides. So that's the other term bombing. When you go out bombing, that's like tagging, yep. tagging or doing throw ups. So a throw up is something that's simple. It's not like straight letter. It's that defined, but it'd be quick and it's a, bigger than a tag. And you could do it in like two minutes, three minutes, okay. otherwise known as a fill-in or a throw-up or a throwy. Um, and if I'm bombing track sides, that means I'm going out onto a train line and tagging or doing pieces and stuff like that. Yep. And, and then the last part was, I want to paint more, which is quite obvious what that means. Hopefully. Yeah. I'll s- <laughs> I want to paint more, so I want to go out and paint more. I spray walls and stain floors. So I'm spraying the walls and staining the floors with something to leave a mark till it's my day in court because you will eventually get arrested. Yep. (laughs) 
So even though people might listen to that and think that was a bit of an odd thing, it's like that just shows how the terminology, the in, how indented it is into people's identities. And for a lot of people, especially when they first start out or before Banksy became the street art kind of celebrated thing across the world where his work will be preserved and then someone that's done something next to him will get charged and put into jail. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Unless, he, is, unless he shreds it in an auction, apparently. I did really like that, though. That I did pretty, really like that. That's pretty funny. I did like that. Um, yeah, I thought that was pretty clever. Because the whole thing is, people don't get this. Banksy was a graffiti writer. Yep. He started off doing tags and pieces. Yep. And then transitioned into doing stencils and became this worldwide phenomenon, this art movement. But what annoys me is, to a certain degree, is people think that's where it all started. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we've talked about today's. We're talking like decades and generations of people around the world, you know, it started off probably in Philadelphia, New York. And then has when the hip hop package was then sold to the world, it was like Germany, France, Spain, the UK, Ireland, Russia, all over the world. And I've gone and painted and hung out with people in so many different countries like Germany, Holland, Belgium, Spain, the UK, Australia, New Zealand. And I don't think I'm that well traveled. Yeah. But every time I've hung out with people, this worldwide culture and, you know, saying that it's the biggest art movement ever, it's, I think that's actually probably pretty accurate because most art movements last five, 10 years at a push. And they're normally dictated by the art world. The art world will tell you that pop art is the next movement or the art world will tell you that cubism is the next movement or whatever. And graffiti's like, nah, no, we're not, we're not, no, no, we're just going to keep doing it. And oh, what, we get arrested for it. Oh, we'll just keep doing it. That'd be all right. Why not? Keep going. Let's keep going. Let's do it in the most ridiculously dangerous places. Yeah, we'll be all right. We'll be all right. We'll be fine. <laughs> and also you don't normally see many graphic designers or people that do um, canvases fighting each other on the streets over their artwork. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that is true. But I wonder if it's, I guess similar to most, similar to a few other examples I can think of, it's probably the widest because it's the most accessible. Like yeah. uh, the example I'm thinking of is like sort of fitness and training. CrossFit's massive, but CrossFit's super accessible to a lot of people. Like it's yeah. everywhere and it's, you know, basic equipment and a ton of moves and they just flog you till you hate yourself. And that's <laughs> CrossFit. Like, but it's massive around the world. It translates well and similar like they have now, uh, well, pretty early on, but still have this sort of like community where if you're traveling, of course. you can go into a CrossFit gym anywhere and sort of be accepted, be with your people kind of thing. Um, so I wonder if the sort of the big or one of the big components to that is uh, the accessibility. Course. especially compared to you know the fine art and whatever other art people can uh, uh think of when they think of art well if you think jack 13 could yeah. be a little kid from i don't know the real sticks of like let's say queensland yeah right where I jack am. 13 <laughs> yeah jack jack 13 could think oh i've seen some of this stuff this seems cool oh what can i do oh there we go oh there's a marker I could just go on the street and write my name somewhere. Yep. And then someone sees it. And that's that's the biggest thing is that, again, poor little Jack 13 will think, 
or might think, or Jane 13, whatever, will think, oh, I'll just use a highlighter. That looks like a normal pen. And then they go up and they do like, they write on something and then it rains and it gets washed off. And they're like, oh, actually, maybe I need to use a certain type of marker. And it's so accessible. Anyone can pick up a spray can. Anyone can pick up a marker pen. Yeah. Anyone can pick up a, like a roller um, thing to paint their own things. But the thing is, is what I'm trying to do is, is that to make people aware of it, but also to try and, and there's a, you know, with my podcast and a couple of other podcasts and people that I talk to is graffiti has been stuck in this quite, especially the graffiti writing part of it, very rigid. And it's like, this is graffiti style. This is not graffiti style. Yeah, yeah. And what's happened is, is that there's been a bit of quite a lot of rebellion about it. So if you can imagine the style has evolved. So um, say for example, Sydney, uh, Brisbane, Melbourne, Adelaide and Perth, they've all got train systems, right? They've all been painted a lot. A lot of people paint or have painted the train systems. That's, that's the highest of the, like the pyramid of graffiti, like painting on trains because of the risk, because of the punishments, because of the, the fact that it moves yeah, and also yeah. all the stuff about the old culture from subway art and how it was all about trains and it, you know, painting a train in comparison to, like doing a wall where it's like in the middle of nowhere, like, yeah, a, like a flipping run down spot, although they're not always safe, which people find out, oh, this is chilled. Whoop, whoop, whoop. And then you're arrested <laughs> for criminal damage. But, um, oh, this is chilled. It's a disused sewage plant in the middle of some fields. This will be all right. Oh, no, I've been arrested for it. Anyway, um, the, the style changed. So it used to be that the train yards would just be like, there'd be no fences. There'd be no difficult there'd be no cameras there'd yeah, be no security yep. guards and then it just kept getting painted so much that they put in super high fences and they put cameras in and they do this and they do that but then writers worked out that well instead of doing that instead of going to the depot the yard the yep. layup where it sits at night or maybe during the day where it's not rush hour because this is the other thing is writers normally have a very very intricate and detailed awareness of train systems yep because you get into it because you want to know, but then you know where all the train yards are, you know where all the train stations are, you know where the local police station is in relation to the train lines. Because that's the thing is the whole thing with the train lines is it's all deeply entrenched. But the thing is with the trains is that your time, it used to be maybe going to a yard and you could get an hour, two hours, three hours to really do some real like, intricate complex pieces with characters and all that type of stuff and still some people manage to do that the the fact that this the paint is now designed for graffiti writing has mean that people could do much bigger bolder things very quickly yeah and the supplies are way more able now you've got the whole thing with harsher punishments and you've got train yards with like sensors and rate um laser wire laser trip things and like flipping and some of the injuries people get is just bananas um but you've got to go quicker you've got to go quicker so people then worked out well hang on instead of doing the the yards or the layups why don't i just do a termination spot so say for example it's gone from like central here to like an end station where it's the end of the train line yep pulls in there stops driver gets off or they walk down to the other end of the train people get off people get on people worked out well i'll tell you what why don't we just yeah well exactly we've got 10 minutes yep why don't we just why don't we just hop a fence and just do the termination spot? And we could just paint in 10 minutes. 
but the thing you're going to do in 10 minutes is very different to what you could do in two or three hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So going really big. And now you've got it where people have worked out you might be only able to get two minutes. So you have three people working on the same piece at the same time in a station where there's people and you've got truck. You've got, I'd heard my mate was telling me the other day that he's got footage of a station guard throwing rocks at them. Go, get out of the effing station, get out of it. And it's like, if you hit me with that rock, I'm probably going to die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so this is the thing which I find fascinating about graffiti culture is that we could probably talk about it for about, well, I do. I talk well, I on my podcast. podcast so a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, I think I put episode 50 out the other day, five zero. Yep. So, and they're, 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 it's, it's intricate. But the thing that I find fascinating is, is that it never stops giving. Like, even now, I don't do really illegal stuff anymore for a variety of reasons. And I also don't really want to be sitting in a police car or a jail cell being talked to by a copper that's like 10 years younger than me yeah, about, yeah. How I need to, about how I need to grow up. <laughs> yep, yep. Understandable. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's complicated. But the thing is, what people need to realize is, is that it's not mindless, so, it's really not mindless. So with the, the whole illegal aspect of it, yeah. um, obviously I'm assuming majority of countries uh, will have some law that is used to essentially try and prevent it, whether it's you know destruction of property or, or whatever the actual laws are. But what's the, I guess, what's the perspective on the legal side of it from a writer obviously it's something that like is it a, a rebellion thing is it an i just don't care thing is it a you know try and catch me thing like what's the what's the i guess the trade-off between it being an illegal activity in the majority of countries and what they actually get out of it by doing it all of those things that you mentioned yeah all of those and more okay. <laughs> so i guess so just give people a bit of perspective. Like when we say you'd be punished for it, people go to jail, like real jail, mm. not like, hey, let's all just gather around and sing together sort of jail. This is like you get chucked in jail with like murderers, rapists, gang members. And you, what you've actually done is, and again, I'm not, I, this is the thing is like, I'm not saying, oh, well, you know, people shouldn't be punished. Like you, it, most people, they know the punishment they're willing to take it yeah but essentially you're applying a material normally spray paint to a surface you're not actually damaging it it's often called defacing yep. so if you deface something you're not actually defacing it you're adding a layer to it with paint you're also the most common um, yeah you're giving it a more <laughs> colorful face yeah. rather than the gray putting, grim putting some makeup on it yeah and if, <laughs> if the makeup looks good all good but yeah. again it's very again it's very subjective this is what we need to realize is is that what you may look at and think that's just a pile of dirt. Yep. And also the, the other idea is that people think that people just tag everything. Yeah, yeah. It's like, if you're a toy, you might do, but if you're a, if you kind of on it, there was a book that came out called the art of getting over, I think by Stephen, at least it's Stephen Porges then not Stephen Porges of polyvagal theory, Stephen <laughs> powers who writes Espo, who's then moved into the, the wider world of street art with the graffiti slam, which is really good. But the whole thing is, it's like, you don't write on people's houses. You don't write on like places of worship. You don't really, you're not really meant to write on 
um, like private property. You wouldn't write on someone's car. Yeah. People do write on people's vans, but that's a bit of a gray area and people's utes and stuff like that. So if someone's listening to this and they're not a ute, is like a van. So there's this idea that it's mega mindless. But the whole thing is, if you can imagine like this, the kudos. So the kudos is um, Jack 13. Social credit. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the kudos, you know, Jack 12. I keep saying Jack 13. It's, it's, his, um, it's his other number plume. Jack 12 <laughs> has gone and done a piece on a street corner in his local neighborhood and done Jack 12 in straight letters. So it's readable chrome fill, like silver fill. So like fill in the main bits, silver. He's an outline. So he's done the outline. He's defined the letters with some black. But Jack 12, people will see that. Other writers will be like, whoa, yeah, Jack 12's getting up. Jack 12's killing it. Yeah. yeah. If they go to a tolerated spot, Hall of Fame, I call them gray area spots because they're very rarely actually 100% legal. And depending on what the police are feeling like they do or don't want to give you bother at, you know, I've been arrested at places which have been painted for 30 years. Yeah. So yeah. that's 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 always great. <laughs> oh, well, where's your laws? Where's your permission slip? And you look around and the place is just covered in graffiti anyway. So if Jack 12 does that straight letter piece on a street corner on like a disused building, cars are going past, maybe it's next to the train line. Other writers see it. They're like, yeah, Jack 12's getting up, killing it. Yeah, nice. Um, if he just does a piece at a legal spot, it's like, yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah, nice piece, but yeah, didn't really. What's Where, where was the risk in that? Not really much risk. Not, not really getting up. So if you can imagine that the illegality of it, people are aware of it. Yeah, yeah. But the punishments are often so harsh. You know, if I've got friends who've gone to jail for years, not just like a couple of weeks, like you can then get, so in the UK, they they were one of the most harsh punishments. They wanted to just crush it. There was a guy by the name of Colin Saysell who was like the graffiti boogeyman, Mm -hmm. boogeyman who would like come and find you. And they, they would, it's not just you get arrested on the spot. You get arrested on the spot. They raid your house. They raid your girlfriend's house. They raid your parents' house. They take your computers. They go, they pull everything out the drawers in a lot of places. A lot of times they'll raid where you work. So if you have a job somewhere, they'll come into work. Most people then assume that you're doing some sort of, I don't know, you know, I had a friend who got fired because they're like, well, we, um, we were just assuming that it's because of you're a, you're a child sex offender. Oh, wow. So ruin it. And then like you will go to court. And especially if you've done this with a couple of other people, you'll be charged with crim- um, conspiracy to commit criminal damage. So you're then on a conspiracy charge. Wow. Okay. So you'll then go to jail for like, I had a couple of mates who went to jail for, one was in for like 18 months, another was 24 months. A guy in the UK, um, very well-known graffiti writer, got three years. And again, it's not like nice chilled. It, the, most of these are not open open prisons. Yeah, like, yeah. The, like a low you know, secure, the, like. What in the UK would be called a category C. You'll be in yeah. a pretty, you'll be in what, you know, one of the most common ones, especially if you're in London, Wormwood Scrubs in in Brixton and it's like these are tough places to be and again I'm not giving any excuses because it's a dangerous illegal thing to do but if people know that's going to happen the level of commitment and people come out of jail right and then then they just keep doing it I've got a mate at the moment who's just gone back into jail and he came out of jail carried on writing the same word and has then gone back to this gone back to jail for that same word 
But is that so would that be something that would be common? So just say like he's he's been done or she's been done, whoever it was, they've yeah. been done for yeah. you know, what it is they're doing, writing yeah. whatever specific word it was and they've come out. Is it almost like a like I guess there's two ways that I could see it being looked at is like that's stupid. Why you've just done exactly the same thing and you've been pinged again. Or yep. is it almost like a pride thing where it's like, yeah, they got me, but I'm I'm back. I'm going to do it again kind of thing. Like how is that looked at? I guess it depends on the individual level because there's a lot of people that will go like go to jail and then be like, uh... or there's some people that will get pinched the first time and they're like, no, this isn't for me. I don't like yeah, getting yeah. my house raided. I didn't learn that lesson. Okay. I didn't really learn that lesson. I think I was so deeply entrenched in the culture. Cause the thing is, is that if it's like, I often suggest it's kind of similar to if you use illicit drugs, like your group of friends becomes other people that use illicit drugs. Yeah. yeah. Like if you smoke a lot of weed, yeah. most of your mates smoke weed. weed. Smokes, yeah. If you're into cocaine, most of your mates do coke. Yeah. If you're into heroin or meth or crack or whatever most of your social circle turns into people that do that drug now the thing is with graffiti culture is the majority of your mates especially if you're young and you don't you basically just hang around with graffiti writers so (laughs) it is stupid to come out of jail but i've got a mate who came out of jail i think he's done about a year and a half the day he came out he went and painted a train yep and yeah. I don't, I think that there might have been like a F you to the system yeah, that yeah. you've chucked me in. But I guess it's that whole thing of once you're deeply entrenched and once then you come out and all your mates are like, yeah, you're back, sweet, come and paint a wall with us. Yeah, sick, blah, 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 blah. And then you're back into it and you're like, there's so many people that go into jail and just come back out and do it again and come back out and do it. And the other thing is, it's very, very addictive. Yep mega addictive i've often said it's almost like you know i did a foreword for a book recently and i tried to kind of give an awareness of the potential for i was i think i was looking at from quite an ot framework you know the biological the psychological and the social and then also chucking on um the environmental because you know social environmental isn't always exactly the same yeah yeah you know that whole thing of it being such a multifaceted complex thing where you become your tag, your brain is releasing the neurotransmitters. You associate with people that do it. You, you find self like you find meaning and self-worth in what you do. And, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, I don't know if you've heard people talk about this is that, you know, people that have been like really hardcore heavy drug users often find that they've just got the void like where you're like, well, what do I do with yeah, my time? Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, very much so. A lot of people that I've worked with through my career, I've, I've described yeah. a couple of them on the podcast before. Yeah, very similar thing. And you know, it's that that is oh, I used it as a, a point to highlight. This is where OT fits because we can yes. explore. You know, the void is real, and just by taking something <laughs> away isn't going to you know fill that void. And it's like you know, physics. I love physics, but. It's like physics, you know, you've created a vacuum and that needs to be filled. And for most people, they're going to fill it with what their brain knows, which is whatever they were filling it with before. Whereas OT, we have the opportunity to, if they're willing to change, if they're at that stage where they, you know, they want to make some changes, we have the opportunity to explore other occupations that 
will actually fit in that void, but might be more, you know, health giving or health, uh, well, healthy. Um, context I've used it in is predominantly in sort of substance use and that kind of thing, hmm. but it would fit the same with with any occupation, really. And I guess the thing is, is again, the other reason why I wanted to talk to you today is that, and it really reminded me, you know, I've already mentioned it a couple of times, but the judgment and yeah. the like finger pointing. And I, I did write some notes down. I carry a notebook now with me when I walk because I don't like looking at my phone when I'm walking. Um, so one of the things which you guys mentioned on the other podcast was um, that, you know, trying to force people to do what you want them to do because you've decided it's best for them. Yeah. And that makes me want to vomit. Not that what you said that, but the fact that when I come into contact with OTs or clinicians where they feel like their norms, which is what we get taught, yeah. like a good OT course will teach us our norms are our norms. Yeah. Our things are ours. They're not how we then tell everyone else to live their life. Like when I first went into practice, I remember there was a, someone told me a story about when they first went into practice that they'd been going to visit someone who was living in a caravan in the middle of a field in the countryside, didn't have a toilet. They were just using a bucket for everything. And they were like, right, okay, well, this is not safe and we've got to change this and we can't have this and blah, 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 blah. That's not normal and blah, 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 blah. And they went back and spoke to their supervisor and hats off to this supervisor because they were like, well, is that person safe? And they were like, yeah. And they're like, well, who are we to tell that person how they should live their life? Yeah. Like that, that's not, that's not ideal probably from a health perspective, yeah. but you're, you're kind of imposing your norms on, it's a bit like, I don't know about you, but you know, when I go and visit people at home and their house is like not in the most clean condition. Yeah. I'm often like, that's, that's but it's the like, example that's, I always use. Cause I'm like, I walk in there and I'm like, yeah, okay. It's probably not how I would live. But if anyone, like, I always think like, what if someone did a home visit at my place? I'm like, or at that point in time, you know, my house was a mess or whatever was going on. I'm like, what judgments would they be making about my house or, or my life or my decisions just based on, you know, the current state of my house? Like, it's all right today, but there's some days where I'm sure people would think I was, I don't know, needing hospitalization because I was unsafe to live if they walked in and it was a, a pigsty. Um, That's it. But... Yeah, I'm still alive. I'm safe. I'm okay. I'm managing. So, like, it's 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 interesting because uh, what you what you were talking about just before sort of feeds into one of my uh, things that I try and I guess make students think about in that the the use of standardized assessments because one of my mm. I mean I know they have their place and all that sort of stuff but my question is always like I'm uh, I question a lot of things I question everything. But my question is always with standardized assessments, like who are they standardized against? Because a lot of the ones that I've read about the actual standardization process, it's usually, you know, white college students um, because they're the easily accessible people that these things can be tested against. Or, you know, they might be you know, Western elderly population or something like that. They're standardized against a generalized population. And not everyone we work with fits that particular population. So a standardized assessment just by definition, weirdly and ironically, 
isn't going to be standardized for everyone <laughs> that we work with. So you kind of need to use a little bit of your critical thinking when even using the things that we're told are gold standard. Yeah. And that's the thing, isn't it? With um, most practice, different types of professions, the medical model, even though we try and push the medical model away because it's very simplistic, you yeah. know, the mechanistic way of looking at the human being, the complexity of the human being. And this is what I loved about, I loved, I still love about OT. And what I have to give my hats off to the University of the West of England in Bristol who, with their OT course. It was such a diverse and really great, education about ot and it was such a good course but it really helped me to kind of get that things are mega complex but actually it doesn't have to be complex if that makes sense because it's like we can overcomplicate things and the medical model teaches us so say for example i have quite a lot of experience doing um work with people in relation to sensory processing so often sensory processing is seen as something that's like only impedes only in pediatrics and it's like oh, okay, well, sensory processing is because someone can't do their handwriting or something. But yeah. actually, as it turns out, everyone has a nervous system. Everyone has a vagus nerve. Well, some people might not, but I don't know how that would all work. And everyone has a mind-body connection. In and everyone general, has, yeah. In general, yeah. 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 And, they, and, and, and their behavior and their psychology and their sensory processing system interrelates all over itself. And anyway, so I then used... I then work with now people of all different ages and I very much have a lens of sensory processing because I, I don't know if you've ever seen the pyramid of learning and right at the bottom is the nervous system. And I was going to say seven senses, but there's actually eight because introception is another yeah, yeah. kind of identified. So, you know, taste, touch, sight, sound, smell, proprioception, vestibular and introception. Yep. I probably left one out, but anyway, that is then seen as, so I see a lot of other OTs, they'll use a standardized assessment tool of, so there's the adult adolescent sensory profile as an example, yep. right? Problem is with that is that's just standardized against the general population. It doesn't actually accommodate for say traumatic brain injury or uh, intellectual disability or autism or anything like that. Now it's a useful tool to kind of be a springboard into understanding because I normally use that in most because I do a lot of assessments of sensory processing yep. here in New South Wales that seems to be OTs like functional and sensory assessments it's like okay yeah but what do we then do with that but what I tie in with that is I kind of call it that three-pronged thing is you know that's the standardized assessment tool that helps because it sparks a bit more conversation but also spending time with the person liaising with them their own personal experiences and then turning into something which can be used, because I think you've talked about it on a different episode, the shower assessment, uh -huh, which was done. Yep. <laughs> and you're like, why on, I was about to swear then, why on earth are we even doing this? Yeah, what's the point? And, and that's what I think, I'm sure there's some OTs listening to this, and they're like, yeah, that's, that's why I'd become really disheartened with OT, because I was basically just like a meat grinder of assessment reports. Yeah. And I wasn't actually doing any occupation focused stuff and standardized assessment tools are cool. They're great, but they are definitely not the be all and end all. And then what I've seen some clinicians do is as an example with the sensory stuff, just use the sensory profile, use the scoring and then just turn that into like a three page letter. And it's like, that's just bloody useless. Yeah. And I, I, I think the sensory profile is one that I've, uh, it sounds like we're very on the same page with with it as well. 
Um, it's one that I've used a lot in mental health because mm. sensory modulation came out as sort of flavor of the month there for a while in mental health. Um, yeah. And it definitely has its value. It definitely has its place. But the, the profile itself, I see a lot of therapists. So I'm going to out myself here. Um, <laughs> back in the day, I made a... Because the sensory profile is a pain in the butt to score. It takes ages adding up, especially if math isn't your thing. Um, you know, transfer all the numbers and transcribe it into these little boxes and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I made a little, uh, like an, essentially an automated spreadsheet where you punch in the raw scores and it does all the adding up yourself for mm-hmm. itself. So anyway, I did that in, it was 10, literally 10 years ago now. And I still get emails about it today from people who have found it, have discovered it and are asking me about it, whether I made one for different versions. Anyway, the... This was, I was a new grad at the time when I made it. I didn't know any better, but again, I was probably one of those people that would administer the the profile and create a report from that. And here you go, off you go. Here's some recommendations. Go and try these. Nowadays, and, and the report section was actually attached in the spreadsheet. So it was like an all-in-one thing. And I thought I was so amazing for developing this tool. Um <laughs> Nowadays, I still use the sensory profile. I still teach the use of the sensory profile, but I teach it. I'll still use the the score aspect of that sheet, but it's only, and this is only, like I will never write a report directly from that profile or with the scores from that profile because the scores themselves don't mean shit. I will use that profile and the scores or the, the essentially where the, the scores are leaning towards for an individual to start a conversation and start mm. actually sort of exploring and experimenting some sensory uh, options, some sensory tools with that individual. Because in the end, you know, saying that someone is, oh, you're in the top 14% of people who are sensory seeking or, you know, you're have a high threshold for visual but an active response. Like, that doesn't mean shit to most people. <laughs> and unless you actually explore it, it really doesn't mean shit to you either on paper. Because, and the, the thresholds are actually the part that I find the most useful with the way that I use it. The sensory seeking, sensory avoiding, yeah, that's cool, but which sense? Because I can be, you know, top 2% or top 4%, whatever the top category is, um, for sensory avoiding, but that might only be with, you know, taste. Uh, I could be yeah. normal or below normal, standardized. I say normal as in the, the standardized normals that the assessment itself has. Yeah, whatever, whatever normal actually bloody means. Yeah. Which is- but I could be the opposite for other senses. And if I just go, okay, yep, I'm sensory seeking, that's not an accurate representation of what I need from a sensory point of view. Which is why I find the thresholds more interesting uh, or more useful. But also then, like there's something... So if I'm sensory seeking, say, for taste, there's some mm-hmm. things like it's not an automatic... Like, oh, everyone's automatic thing is, oh, that person needs to put hot sauce on everything. And I'm like, I no. fucking hate hot sauce. Like, no. there's a whole lot of other things that you can explore. You could just explore... It might not necessarily be individual you know, condiments to make the, the food spicier or it might just be I need, like I couldn't eat the same thing every day. Like I need variety. It could just be that. Like my wife would quite literally eat the same meal for lunch 
every single day of her life and it wouldn't bother her. I'd be two days in and I'd be bored. Like, there's there's other aspects to it other than the basic recommendations, which, granted, actually came in the manual for the sensory profile, so I think that's where most people get stuck. And it's similar to, again, like we talked about with the hip-hop packaging as a, as a package, you literally get this sensory profile as a package. So for mm. most people that interpret that very literally... That's what the sensory profile is. It's a thing. They fill it out. You give these recommendations. The recommendations are in the manual. Uh, and that's it. That's why I think it's so like tightly packaged and, and formed that people feel comfortable in administering it when it actually is a much more effective and a better tool if you use your own critical thinking along with the tool and don't use it necessarily... I guess it's still used in a standardized way, but the recommendations aren't standardized and they never should be for anything. Um, but I, if you use it in a... Because I, I don't know the author, I can't say whether it was the way it was intended or not, but if you use it in a slightly different way, it becomes an incredibly powerful tool that is incredibly client-centered and a lot more effective. <laughs> yeah. And this is the thing which I've found. So that one of the places where I worked, they labeled me as like a specialist OT who was able to do sensory assessments for people of different ages and different complex presentations and all this type of stuff. And that was all well and good. So actually, I think I became pretty good at I didn't ever use the the standardized assessment tool as the be all and end all. Cause the other thing was I kept thinking like an OT and I was like, how does this relate to occupations? How does this relate to what the person wants to do or needs to do, or they're expected to do? Yeah. Thieving that definition. I've actually <laughs> got on my wall. I've actually got a definition you gave. I've got it stuck oh, on really? the bloody wall. That's a worry. It's probably wrong. <laughs> Opening the door. Here we go. Just embarrass you. Uh, so it's on a piece of paper. Everything we do which occupies our time, oh, yeah, any yeah. activity that occupies your time that has meaning and value to that person. And I've even got Brock Cook 2019 underneath <laughs> it. So that's a good one. But that's the thing is like, what's I'm trying to, I mean, I've kind of gone off topic for graffiti, but again, it kind of comes back to this whole thing of understanding stuff as OTs. Now, you can be the type of OT where you're just happy dishing out commodes and grab sticks, whatever. Yeah. Well, grab. Grab six. Yep. All right. If that's what you want to do, cool. If you want to be an OT that thinks about the complexity, the exciting nature, and the all-encompassing parts of occupational therapy and occupational performance, occupational justice. Yeah. That's what I got super hyped about this morning when I was re-reading the, the occupational therapy practice framework. I found the bit about occupational justice. Yep. Like, uh, the profession's concerned with ethical, moral, and civic factors that can support or hinder health-promoting engagement, occupations, and participation in home and community life. And that kind of stuff just gets me so excited. And I'm like, yes, yes. And that's why understanding clients who, I mean, I'm, I'm quite lucky. I've been around a lot of people who use heavy drugs. That's probably not been a good thing, life-wise. But I know a lot of people that have used a lot of drugs. I've known a lot of people that have drunk a lot of alcohol. Yep. I've I've worked with a lot of people who have criminal justice history. I've got a lot of friends who are in jail. I grew up in an environment where there was a lot of violence. It was domestic violence, social violence. Now, I was brutally attacked a number of times. I've had like brain injuries, drug and alcohol misuse issues, la, 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 la. But that doesn't make me an expert on it. It just gives me an ability, I think, to be able to kind of 
see the people as people and their yeah. occupations as occupations rather than, well, I've decided that um, Johnny can't do drugs anymore because they're wrong. Yeah, dr- yeah. Drugs are wrong and graffiti is wrong because I've decided. Yep. So I guess it all kind of, I'm trying to segue it back into all making sense because I, well, I know I went off on many no, different no, no, tangents. Well, but I, I guess like, uh, yes, technically it's not specifically about uh, graffiti, what we've just spoken about, but I guess in my head, I'm trying to, get across the point that I think a lot of people don't understand it because they don't like, you know, like we've spoke about before, like, Oh, I'm not in that world. There's no way I can understand it. But yeah. I think from a, you're probably not going to get all of the nuance. I'll be honest with no. that. I don't get all of the nuance because I'm not involved in that world. But no. as an OT where we're trained, we have the skills to be able to get an outsider's yeah. perspective or, Actually, when we're talking to someone, so you might have someone on your ward or in your clinic or whatever who is engaged in that world, you have the skills to explore that with them um, yeah. without uh, coloring that exploration with your own lenses, which is what yeah. we should be doing for everyone. But I'm just trying to highlight that we already have, you have, you have the skills to be able yeah. to understand <laughs> a, a culture like this, whether it's a culture from a different country or a culture like this that's probably existed under your nose for your whole life and you've never really even sort of put two thoughts to it, you have the skills to be able to develop an understanding or at least an understanding enough to be able to work more successfully with someone who is engaged in that culture already. So don't just sort of, I guess, my concern is that people just... uh, I guess pass it off because it's like I, I've I've never come across anyone. It's probably because you've never asked the right questions. But um, just it because seems- you're not involved in it doesn't mean you can't get a better understanding. And I find like yes, okay, I'm probably well, not probably. I'm definitely probably never going to go out and tag a train. Like I'm not. That's that's not a thing that is sort of. It's not for me, but. I find in getting or developing understanding of cultures and subcultures such as the the graffiti culture, the street art culture, it helps me, if nothing else, it helps me cement the fact that I can actually do that, even just that. Like that itself is a skill, being able to develop an understanding based on conversations that you have with people. Uh, if you can't develop understanding of anything based off conversations, you're probably going to struggle as an OT because that's, <laughs> that's probably the only tool that we've genuinely got. Um, and if Talking that's the only people. tool, and if that's the only tool that you have, then, and you're good at it, you're 90% of the way to a successful outcome anyway. I was going to say talking with people, like to give the example that you had on the other episode, Clarissa was, you know, your student saying, how do I work with someone who's like, misuses substances or yeah. like been in jail and i'm like it's a bloody person yeah it's a person they who's decided human. to use well they haven't decided it's more complex than just decided yeah, yeah. or not decided but they but, are using a substance of some sort or and it's like oh how would i talk to a graffiti oh how would i oh how would i possibly talk to someone who's done graffiti it's like you're a bloody person that's yeah. like saying how would i speak to someone who's into cycling yeah well and i've, I've never done cycling although i'm into cycling or uh CrossFit. I've never actually done CrossFit, but I'm really in. But I'm really into resistance training yeah. and sprint training. Now I'm sure there's some overlapping things, but even not, I could just sit down and say, 
well, oh, can you just tell me about CrossFit? Because I don't know much about it. Like, like, like you spoke on that episode is when someone realizes you are actually interested yeah. in them, not for, not for the reason of like, I need to tell you what to do. You know, people have it where I go and meet them. They're like, oh, I've never had a therapist like you. I'm like, uh-oh, what's it going to be? Is it I'm just really unprofessional or something? And they're like, you actually listen to me and you talk to me. And like you acknowledge that I, yeah. I'm not perfect. And I'm always things like that. I'm like, that's because we're all bumbling around with this idea that we all need to be these perfect know-it-all things. And we need to, like someone said to me the other day, they're like, oh, should you reckon I should go on like a course then to understand uh, people that are drug addicts and I was like um well I, maybe some information yeah. but I guess talk to them like a human being oh do you think I need further training to understand but would you say do I need to understand do I need further training to understand someone who's a cyclist well maybe but that, I guess that's the thing I think you, what you touched on just then is like yeah there are courses for everything you could possibly imagine but I can guarantee you a course isn't going to no matter what the course even this podcast may not always help you uh, understand what it's like for a person in whatever situation it is. There are courses that might provide you with tools or options to assist that person. But you can, like like we were talking about before, like I can run a sensory profile on someone and never talk to them. Is it going to be really good or is it going to be actually useful information? Guarantee you not but I can do it. Um, Doesn't stop OTs doing it though. No, oh, My goodness. Yeah. Oh, that's another podcast altogether, that one. Yeah. <laughs> but. Us, two, us two just ranting about, not ranting, but you know, the whole thing of, I got told the other day, they're like, well, yeah, okay. And I said, I'm, you know, I was talking to, I work with quite a few clients. So I work with people of all different ages and presentations. And a lot of the clients who end up being gravitated towards me are, the, the what inverted commas complex I, I think everyone's complex yeah, but yeah. you know the people they're like and i'm like okay so this person's got maybe autism spectrum disorder they've got some clear sensory dysregulation happening or sensory regulation issues they've got fine da, 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 all the stuff and i'm like okay so has an ot ever done any sensory assessment or any sensory implementation yeah yeah and they say oh yeah well we did have an ot talk to me on the phone um, and I'm like, okay, so this is the person's mum or dad. Yeah, yeah. And you spoke, he spoke to you on the phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then he sent us something in the post, like it said the sensory profile or something. <laughs> and I just, I was, and I just kind of like bite my tongue and think that makes OTs just look like idiots. Like the, the, the potential stuff that we can do with so many, like the sensory, the emotional, the psychological, the social, the emotional, the environmental, all that stuff that we're taught how to do. And again, not everyone is, not everyone's got taught all of that stuff. I was lucky, yeah. but that simplistic medical model of OT, honestly, it makes me want to throw up. Like when I hear stuff like that, I'm just like, well, that's not ha quite how I do it. I'll come and meet you, spend time with the person, la, 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 la. Then I write a report. I try and keep it short, but then it's all about the implementation and, you know, empowering that person to feel more calm and regulated through sensory related activities and all that type of stuff. And some people they're like, wow, this is, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And I just think, well, this isn't, isn't this what you're meant to do? Yeah. And then other people they're like, uh, I just wanted like, you to come in and just tick a box so that we can give it to the national disability insurance scheme people. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And that's the thing. Like I, I, I feel like a lot of people, 
like if you if you think about it, and this is going to sound probably there's going to be someone that probably feels attacked by this, but if you think that we spent four years, three years, two years, you know, got an undergrad, got a master's, got a doctorate, whatever it is that your qualification is that made you an OT or that allowed you to be an OT, if you spent think we spent that long to be able to administer an assessment, then you're a fool because the administering assessment any trained monkey can do that most of them come with instructions you just follow them but it's the interpretation of that information and what you then do with that information that is the reason that we are a health professional and not just you know joe blogs on the street who ordered a sensory profile on amazon like that's what differentiates us from anyone like, I've, I've given a sensory profile to my wife, who's a special ed teacher, and she's administered it with students. Not saying yeah. that she's, you know, like, she's smarter than me, but she's not trained, in inverted commas, in sort of sensory processing and sensory administration, but she did it. Uh, I've given them to, you know, my students, who at the time, yes, a lot of them are trained now, but at the time when they were doing it would have been second years out of a four-year bachelor's, they had no issue administering it. Like, it's not difficult to administer an assessment. Some of them have rules that you then follow, but those ones always come with instructions. It's the interpretation of that information and, and what you do with it and how you relate it to the individual, not the population, unless it's a population assessment, I should qualify that. But we're thinking about for an individual. So how I interpret a sensory profile, and I know we're bragging on the sensory profile at the moment, but it's just a, it's just a good <laughs> example at the moment. But how I interpret a sensory profile with one person is going to, and what I do with it, is going to be very different from how I even interpret it with another person because their background, their cultures, their experiences, their, you know, whatever the reason is that they're actually seeing me in the first place are all going to be different for every individual. Therefore, the results are going to be someone who fills it out with high anxiety is going to end up with, I can guarantee you, if someone, if we were to do this experiment and someone was to fill out a sensory profile when they're at the height of an anxiety attack, is going to get very different results from if that exact same person was calm, collected, you know, thinking straight, everything was good, it was a good day, and they filled out the sensory profile again. That's the same person. In theory, it should be the same, but the context is different. Therefore, the results are going to be impacted. So how I interpret that, like, oh, this person's high anxiety, like everything is going to be different from how it might normally be. But if that's their default setting at the time, maybe that's the reason they're seeing me as a mental health OT. But if that's how they are at the time, then that's what I'm working with. If they come in and they're just anxious and it's that day, something's happened that day, and it's not how they usually are, that's going to also change how I interpret those results. Like, okay, yeah, these results are saying this, but normally some of these things probably might be a bit different and we would go and explore that with them or we'd be smart and defer it and do it on a day that they're actually feeling a bit better so it's important this is why it's important to get an understanding of people and be able to develop that understanding of people because a standardized assessment on its own isn't going to cut it like i said any trained monkey can administer an assessment but you're not going to find one that has the four years clinical training and the critical thinking skills, fingers crossed, 
to be able to <laughs> interpret that result for the individual. And that's, I think, the big thing about why it's important to be able to understand people to the level that we've talked about today with people within a graffiti culture. That details, and it might seem like semantics when we're talking about it and back and forthing about it today, but that level of knowledge and that level of um, uh, being, well, not a level, but being able to develop an understanding of a subculture other than your own, uh, or even your own sometimes, but developing an, a knowledge of a working knowledge of a culture is going to benefit you as a clinician. So even if you take, you might take one tiny thing away and it might be, say, some of the terms uh, that you've explained today with regards to graffiti and you're going to come across someone on your ward um, who is engaged in that culture and the fact that you might actually understand or even hopefully correctly use some of the terms that is a like can you imagine the rapport that you are able to build with someone just having that tiny little like it might only be one word you might actually understand what a cap is or you know or, what a tag or, is or the fact that it's a graffiti writer or something like that it's that's exactly what i was going to say if yeah. someone if i say for example if i was in a mental health ward and i was a patient and i was drawing in my sketchbook and i was drawing something and then the ot or clinician came out doesn't have again doesn't have to be an ot yeah came over and was like all right cool what do you write i'd be like the f, f? yeah i'd be like what i said do you and they're like oh yeah what, what what do you write and i'm like this person knows something and that's the thing is when when i've gone through a lot of the terminology in this episode to like bring it to a close is that i don't want people to then think they've got to get things exactly right and they need to use the exact terms and if they use the wrong term then they've lost the client but it's like getting this idea that and this whole thing with ot is you know i've talked very in depth about graffiti culture there's tons of other um occupations that maybe come under leisure or productivity again i I'm trying to rebel against that. And I know that you, you don't find it that simplistic either. Cause then where's the dark side of occupations with that. And yep. it's like, but anyway, but just even have, I, I don't know loads about, I don't know, um, bird watching. I know nothing about it. I can't use the right terminology or transistor radio broadcasting. I know nothing about it. Yep. I know nothing, but if I show a slight interest in it and actually then t- change the dynamic of I'm here as this expert, so what I normally do is very often I'll work out what people like doing and then I'll say, oh, I've never done that before. Can you just show me how to do it? Yeah. And it, that the difference I've had with that, it changes that dynamic. There was one guy who was like, I don't do, I don't do card games. I just, well, I play Uno a fair amount, but like actual like poker and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. One of the clients, participants, whatever patient taught me how to play poker. Yep. And I hadn't, I had not seen him smile or engage the previous three or four sessions where I was trying to like work out what was meaningful to him. As soon as it was something that was meaningful, he was straight in there and he was smiling and laughing. And I said, Oh, well maybe next time we'll come back and maybe I could show you some stuff that maybe I know how to do. And he was like, yeah, cool. All right. Yeah, sweet. Uh, He said, keep Then as I left, he said, keep practicing the poker. I reckon you could be all right at it. And I was like, that is the change in the dynamic where I'm not the person teaching him. I'm the person engaging with him and finding what's meaningful. Yeah. And then it's 
it's the means and it's the end. It's, that say, is the vehicle. That's your occupation as means right there, adding that on yes. to what we might already have been doing, which is the end, which is what everyone yeah. seems to, you know, everyone seems to have their head around that bit, but actually engaging. And if you're able to, if you, your service has the capacity in your role, engage with them. Uh, like I guarantee you, even while you were learning poker or being taught poker, like there was conversations that were had during that session or during that time that added so much value to not only to you know your assessment of that individual and their situation, but just so much value to that therapeutic relationship and to the individual themselves. Like the the benefits are exponential for actually getting this stuff right, and that's the power. That's, that's the power of OT. Yeah. The last thing I would say is the problem is, is that a lot of people do get stuck in these work environments where they've got a high caseload. I was there. You have yeah. a really high caseload. You're meant to just go in, do da, 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 da. But now I'm in private practice. The, the scope that I have now being able to and really sticking up for the OT stuff. So again, thanks to Occupied Podcast, really pushing the terminology and backing up OT, not saying always activity defining what occupation means very briefly in a report. But my categories are like instrumental activities of daily living, activities of daily living. And then I explain very briefly what that is to start getting people to understand what we're actually doing here because people don't know what OTs are. Now I don't do like 10 pages of explaining what OT is, but just trying to implant into people's minds because in Australia, especially OTs are seen as like, here, I want to, here's a, um, a wish list of um, assistive technology that I want under NDIS, go off and get it. Yeah. And a lot of new grads, because the whole thing with NDIS is it's changed the dynamic where new grads are being chucked into these roles with no real supervisors. Not that I had many supervisors, but like supervisors, you don't really have much of a team. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I met quite a few like subcontracting as soon as they're it's very qualifying. Yeah. And it's like, here's this list of stuff that I've decided, go and get it. And it's like, I pushed against that a long time when I first started and I got a lot of stick for it, but you know what? Like we need to realize, and I'm sure a lot of people do is OT is an amazing, amazing profession. The reason why we're in such high demand, especially under NDIS is we're so diverse. We can be so adjustable. We can be so creative and we can also do things that other professions cannot do. A lot of other professions, a lot of other people don't understand it and sticking to our, terminology and explaining that to people and pushing it and the other thing i'd just like to say is if there's ot's listening to this and they're like i'm sick of ot i've had enough i would make a very i would probably put a poker bet on it i bet <laughs> that it's probably not ot that you don't like it's probably the role you're in yeah i i, I guarantee please that. stick with it I've ot's we there. need to and we also need to push ot one thing i'd love to do is start doing something where it's explaining ot and the principles of ot to the general public yep because other professions are doing that yeah other professions psychology is doing that physio is doing that all these other professions are pushing engagement in meaningful occupations especially since covid yeah and ot's we really need to I don't know how we can do it, but we don't have those like mega well-known people like in the trauma field. There's like Gabor Mate and Bessel van der Kolk. And I don't know about speech and physio, but they're big names, but 
you know, other than some of the names who I come across in, you know, the chronic persistent pain, Bronnie, Bronnie Lennox Thompson, like she's very outspoken, but try and explain why OT. Oh, she's amazing because <laughs> I've, I've done loads of extra learning because I have experienced chronic persistent pain for about 10 years. Yeah, yeah. And especially Bronnie's stuff, when I had the OT perspective on it, it actually changed my life. Yeah, I've so known, I've shout known out Bronnie to her. for a, a long time. She's, she's gold. But that's, you know, because I, I was getting, you could see I was getting really excited, but OT is such, it's changed my life. Yeah. It's improved my life. And it's been a piece of the puzzle where I changed my life from a very dark part of my life. And it was really not going very well at all. And I've turned my life around and having that ability to now see things through the occupational lens and all the nuances around that, I don't think I could ever have made a better choice for a profession. So I'll leave it on that positive note. Wow, that's that for a summary. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks so much for having me on. No worries. Also, it's been awesome. Also, big up to you for the Occupied podcast because, and also to Quacku doing OT and Chill. Um, it was also mega exciting to find two male OTs because I know we're, we're, a, we're not we're exactly. A, I was going to say a rare breed, but we're what eight percent or something. <laughs> And I think what you're doing is so good. And I just hope this OTs listen as much as I do and like find that inspiration and that spark that's been worn out by maybe a role which isn't occupation focused. And also understanding there's so many OTs out there that are mega passionate, occupation focused, and the sky is the limit for OT. So thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Now, I know normally I'd get people to shout out their Insta, but we're keeping you nice and honest. But does your podcast have like socials or? Where can people yeah. chase you, your your graffiti podcast down? So the graffiti podcast Toy Division has an Instagram. So it's Toy Division underscore podcast on Instagram. And if any OTs out there wanted to like have a chat with me or whatever about what we've spoken about today or just any general OT stuff. I've been trying to keep my actual private practice and the podcast separate, but feel free to direct message me on there because I've actually had a few people reach out and say, Oh, could you just consult us on some stuff and stuff like that? So if people want to do that, if not, just tune into the podcast. You may think I have no interest in graffiti, but we talk about like health and wellbeing, mental health, sleep, the whole graffiti culture. And it really will give even more examples of how deep a rabbit hole graffiti culture actually is yeah fantastic awesome well yeah thanks heaps man it's it's been a blast i've had a a, an awesome time and i've definitely learned an absolute ton off your experience so yeah thanks can't thank you enough nice one shout out to all the ot's out there If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, share it with a Hi guys, just a quick note after the fact, uh, Mr. TD has advised me that he has started running graffiti workshops uh, for anyone who wants them really. So if you are interested in accessing his services for your clients, for yourself, for whoever, 
uh, please get in contact with him through his Instagram account, which is Toy Division underscore podcast. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you very much.